Good morning. We are going to continue in my, what was before, sporadic series through the book of Acts. And we are doing the next text next. And I would ask that in honor of the reading of God's word, that you stand with me as we read our text that begins in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and concludes with Acts chapter 5, verse 16. The scripture reading will be lengthy, but the sermon will not. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it. And laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church. And upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So that even they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. We read at the beginning of our text that the whole congregation was of one heart and one soul. This fledgling church had endured persecution at the wicked hands of the chief priests. They embodied the words of Paul that it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. In spite of relentless pressure and harassment, they remained unified. For they rejoiced in the apostles' teaching about the resurrection of Christ. And we've been given a glimpse in Acts as to what the apostles would preach over and over and over again. What was it that these men and women of God would cling to on the daily sermons of the apostles? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That we live in an age of fulfillment that Jesus himself has fulfilled the scriptures and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And the apostles called their hearers to repentance. Not only was the church embracing the apostles' testimony about the resurrection, they were caring for the needs of all the people. The high theology of the apostles led to a right anthropology among God's people. In other words, they displayed a love of God and a love of the church. And this little description of these early followers of Jesus displays that they had been taught and indeed heeded the words of our Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. No matter the persecution, no matter the pressure, their devotion remained steadfast through the first four chapters of Acts. Consider Peter's sermon at Pentecost. After the conclusion of that sermon, we read that 3,000 people were saved and that the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And that awe came upon every soul And many wonders and signs were being done through the hands of the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. That was back in chapter 2. And in between Pentecost and now, where we are in our text, Peter and John have been arrested following the healing of the lame crippled man at Solomon's portico. They had been warned to no longer preach in the name of Jesus Christ, this one who was raised from the dead. And the church's response to these evil Sadducees was not to kowtow. For Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so instead of yielding to the wicked command of the high priests, no longer preach in the name of Christ, instead they prayed for boldness 
And we read in verse 31, last time we preached in Acts, that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And what is this word of God they wanted to preach so boldly? It is that Jesus Christ is risen. It is that he has been resurrected from the dead according to the scriptures. And that he came, friends, to save sinners from their sin. Indeed, he is the resurrection and the life. It is Christ who said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never what? Never die. And for the apostles, and I'm sure the rest of the early church, these early followers of the way. They loved the public testimony of the resurrection. And they coupled it with a call to repentance. That was true of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 when he begins preaching and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is true following Christ's baptism and his period in the wilderness and the temptation. He comes out preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is true of the apostles and the gospels and in the book of Acts. And it is true for the church throughout history. It is our calling to declare to the world that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is risen that the kingdom has come and that you are to repent of your sins. And as a result of the Holy Spirit filling these Christians, they not only listened to and took part in the apostles' teaching, there was unity in the body of Christ. With a view toward praising our Lord and ministering to God's people. We read, therefore, that there were these men and women of faith made great sacrifices so that God's people would not go hungry. They acted the same after the sermon at Pentecost before the persecution from the high priests as they did after the persecution of the high priests, selling their possessions and ensuring God's people had provision. And no doubt in this church, there was great rejoicing as family after family, household after household, sold their earthly possessions for the sake of a heavenly kingdom. Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in. And steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Luke singles out for someone in our text whose treasure has been laid in heaven. This man who will be so pivotal in the book of Acts, who was so close to the Apostle Paul, who was integral and used by God to spread the gospel throughout the world. This man, Barnabas, this son of encouragement. Luke, we may note here, like so many of the biblical writers, has the heart of a poet. Because with this allusion to Barnabas, he wants the reader to see a subtle comparison. In chapter 1, we read that Judas 
took his money, the silver that he received when he betrayed the Holy One, and he bought a field that ultimately became known after his hanging as Akeldama, that is, field of blood. But whereas Judas took money from the builders who rejected the cornerstone and bought a field of blood, Barnabas sells a field and takes all the money and lays it at the apostles' feet because Barnabas knew that money wasn't his to begin with and that land wasn't his to begin with. And though Barnabas and no doubt so many others devoted their earthly possessions to Christ and his people, the church, the congregation had some who wanted all of the praise without Jesus being their Lord. And listen to me, dear friend. I don't care what prayer you prayed. If Jesus is not your Lord, you are not a child of God. You hear me this morning? You better leave this church building today knowing that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. And there are people in this church who sought the praise of men and did not want to be obedient to our Lord. In the beginning of the text we read, Luke has told us that the believers were of one heart and of one soul, but were coming to a disturbing story. James would later warn those scattered in the dispersion to purify your hearts, ye double-minded. The man in church with an impure heart is a double-minded man in the house of God. To those living a life of pride and sin among God's people, James warns, friendship with the world is enmity with God. James says that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. He implores the church-going sinner to be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This itself calls calls to mind the words of our Savior. When warning those who had not mourned their sin, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. But there's a promise, James says. There's always a promise. That if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. The word of the apostles and the call of Christ is to humbly come to Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will what? I hope you have rest today. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. But there was a couple in the church still at enmity with God. Their sin had not been mourned, and they were double-minded, and they had not the easy yoke of our Savior. Up to this point, we've seen the church withstand persecution from without, but we haven't yet seen sin, division, disunity, and strife from within. And so we come to Ananias and Sapphira. We read that while the rest of the church had been filled with the Holy Spirit, 
Satan has filled Ananias' heart to lie. We may note here that Luke has a theme of filling in the book of Acts. The apostles are filled with the Spirit as people are saved. They're filled with the Spirit. You're to look for men to appoint to leadership positions who are full of the Spirit. We'll read that the whole of Jerusalem is filled with the teaching of Christ. You'll read that the leaders of the high priestly family are filled with jealousy. And here, Ananias' heart has been filled by the evil one to lie. So where Judas took the high priest's silver and exchanged it for a field of blood, and though Barnabas sold his field and brought all the money to God's house, Ananias wanted, he wanted a little bit of both. He wanted a little bit of Jesus, and he wanted a little bit of the world. He desired to be well thought of among God's people, among the apostles in the church. He wanted the accolades of making the coin box ring loudly while greedily holding back, displaying himself to be a liar, even to God. Peter, in this story, clearly knows Ananias' heart. It's implicit in the text that Ananias had represented to Peter and the church that he would sell the field and that he would donate all the proceeds to the church so that all the money would be going for the support of God's people. And it's plain that God has revealed Ananias' scheme supernaturally to Peter. Peter asks Ananias then four questions. Each question an indictment for which there was no response. Question one. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Question two, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Question three, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Question four, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Peter highlights in these questions the sheer silliness of this ridiculous sin. He wasn't compelled to sell the land. There was no apostolic rule that you have to sell it. He wasn't compelled to donate the money once he did sell the land. And he sure wasn't compelled to lie about it, to say, I'm going to donate so much and yet donate less. And just like in the garden, when the serpent and the sinner each bear responsibility, in this passage, Peter blames both. In the first question, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? And the rest of the questions are purely about Ananias. This father of lies and his thieving son are being called out by the man of God. And just like in the garden, the consequences are grave. For Ananias fell down and breathed his last. Thematic in Acts is that the church is the new and greater Israel, ushering the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. Like Achan purloining the forbidden things from Jericho, Ananias had kept that which was devoted to God. 
And as you can imagine, fear came upon all who heard of Ananias' death. Perhaps reminiscent again of the garden, Ananias and Sapphira are separated here. For there's a three-hour window where she's unaware of his death. Now, I'm sure Ananias heard the gospel many times from far better preachers than any of us will ever hear it. I'm also sure that he said he was a believer. But he should have listened to the word of our Lord to be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Now, compare Ananias. Listen to me. Compare him to David. David did a wicked thing as well. He's in his palace one day, he looks out of the window, and he sees a beautiful young woman. And he lusts in his heart after her, and he calls her over, and he lay with her. And she comes to him or sends word that she's with child. And so he contrives a scheme And has Uriah, this great warrior, Bathsheba's husband, come home. He sends a great meal to their home, wanting them to conceal his sin. Doesn't work. He has Uriah come over to the palace and get some drunk. Just go with your wife before you go back to battle. But Uriah is a man of honor and, and thinking about his kindred men in the battlefield, he he won't do it. So David writes a letter, hands it to Uriah and says, you go hand this to Joab when you go out to battle. And that letter says that you're to send him to the hottest battle on the front. And he did. And word comes back that Uriah is killed and David coldly says, well, that's okay, that happens in battle, many men die by the sword. But the Lord had a man, he had a preacher, whose name was Nathan, who came over to David's house. And Nathan told David a story about a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had many sheep and many flocks and great lands, and the poor man had a little ewe lamb. They treated as though it were their own daughter. And the rich man was going to have somebody come over to his house, and, and he wanted a, and that, that visitor wanted a lamb for dinner. But the rich man spared all of his flock and took that little ewe lamb and gave it to the visitor. David, upon hearing this, is irate. He is demanding great punishment for the rich man, that the poor man be restored fourfold. And there's only one translation that captures the moment right, where Nathan looks at David, points at him, and says, Thou art the man. And David, though a great sinner, he had a new heart. And he repented that very day. And though the consequences of sin remained, David lost two sons. He had a daughter subjected to a horrible sin. The sword was spared him. And we know that David is in Abraham's bosom. 
Sapphira then comes in. She confirms from her very mouth that she had conspired with her husband. Sapphira, like Ananias, is convicted with an unanswerable question. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, Peter said, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. It's terrifying. And we read that they were buried beside one another, separated in life at this critical moment, but together in death. Unsurprisingly, Luke tells us, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And I want to tell you something this morning. That there's two types of church members. You listening to me? There's two types. They're saved and unsaved. I'm going to tell you how you can find out if you're sitting next to an unsaved church member. It's the key to it. They're unrepentant. They are unmoved by the spirit. And they are not unsettled by the preaching of God's word. Incidentally, that's how you can know too about yourself. My granddaddy told me once that the greatest text about sanctification in the Bible is 2 Samuel 3 and 1. And it reads that there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And the house of David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And I would encourage you this morning to look at your own life. We all have the house of Saul in us. The question is, do you have the house of David? And I would encourage you to be doing things in the liturgy of your daily life to empower the house of David within you, to read God's word, to pray to him, to cling to him, and to do those things that magnify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This church in Jerusalem, this church had been at peace. It had been growing. They had displayed a devotion to God's word and his people. Even amidst a world filled with violent leaders looking to quell this budding religion, they had joy, they had boldness, and they had hope for the kingdom of God. And now, tragedy has struck. Death has come to the house of the living God. God has decreed through his apostle that he will not be lied to. And he will not be cheated. So God killed Ananias and Sapphira. Just like he did Nadab and Abihu upon their offering of a strange fire. Because our God will not be mocked. And these early Christians, listen to me, these early Christians, they had to wonder. This judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, is that a judgment on them only? Or did it portend something dark for the community? Remember, these are, at this point, they're all coming from Judaism. They're steeped in the Jewish scriptures. They have to be thinking, is the consequence going to be like death coming to all through Adam? 
or Joshua's army falling at Ai. They had to wonder, what shall we do? And I want to tell you what the leaders of this church did. What, what, what would you do? What are you doing? I'm going to tell you what the leaders of this church did. They did what they knew God wanted them to do. They went right back to where they knew God wanted them, preaching the good news of the kingdom to anyone who would hear. And they preached the good news of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, and they called on all men to repent. Interestingly, it's only the apostles who are going to the temple grounds daily, for none dared go with them. Now, I read this as the rest of the church. I don't think that has to do their staying back with Ananias and Sapphira. I think that has to do with the place where the preaching is taking place. The last time the apostles are at Solomon's portico, they get arrested. They're going right back to the temple to declare the resurrection of Christ. Remember that the Sadducees control the temple and they reject the doctrine of resurrection. So the apostles are going right back there. And so everybody at church thinks, okay, if the apostles are getting arrested and they're performing these miracles, we're probably going to get arrested. So I wouldn't hold that against them. But here's the most important thing, what I, what I want to leave you with. After Peter's confession that the Son of Man is the Christ, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this thing to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, what? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's so much controversy and debate about the phrase, on this rock, that we allied past the next phrase, where Jesus Christ declares, and it is recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures, that Jesus Christ will build his church. And so we read in verse 14 of chapter 5, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So picture this church in Jerusalem, perhaps a series of house churches in the wake of these deaths. The apostles are going to the temple daily, and they're hanging back because they're scared. Now imagine the joy and sweet encouragement of more and more believers. More believers than ever are added to the church. More than the 3,000 saved at Pentecost. More than the 5,000 saved after the healing of the crippled man in Solomon's portico. And on the single page of scripture, at the end of one paragraph... Two people are dead and buried. And at the end of the next, innumerable are coming to know the Lord. And all the sick and all the afflicted are healed. Like so much of scripture, we're seeing here life coming from death. Like ex nihilo creation or the story of the Passover or the birth of Isaac where the Apostle Paul tells us it's a double miracle for Abraham was as good as dead. And Sarah's womb was barren. Or like the opening of Rebecca's womb or Rachel's, the birth of Samson or Samuel or John the Baptist or Ezekiel's valley of the dry bones. Or, the, of course, the resurrection itself 
and indeed your salvation if you're a child of God. For you were dead in your trespasses, and you have been made alive in Christ by the power of the Spirit. (laughs) Two of you. So I want to end with this encouragement. This is a tough sermon, okay? It's It's a tough sermon any week. But I want to end with this encouragement to you. Listen. There was once a church that was thriving. She loved God's word. She loved the truths of the scriptures and God's grace. And she loved her people well. The cold grip of death struck hard according to God's divine and ancient decree. And fear was cast upon the congregation. Then the healing, saving word of God went forth. And Jesus Christ continued to build his church. Is that a sweet word? I love y'all. And I'm so glad the Lord loves us. We have a wonderful Savior. And his tender mercies are shown to us every single day. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, your decrees are a great mystery. We praise you. For your sovereignty, we praise you that you have saved us. We, have praised, we praise you that you have called a people to yourself, that you have made those who are not a people into a people, yea, a people of God. We ask that you would make each and every one of us more and more like Christ in all things that we say and do. And we ask that you would make this church of one heart and of one spirit. And that we may celebrate daily as we preach the gospel, each and every one of us, that Jesus, you build your church and that you call men unto yourself. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Let's